trying to be so good. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, we had a long warm-up today. We did, but it was good. We, we, you know, and you and I haven't spoken for a while, so it was good for us exactly. to reconnect. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah. a while for us is like two days. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We do. We do. We have. Uh, we are symbiotically connected. In, so, in if you want to know all our views about current events, uh, politics, South Asia, tax cuts. Sexual ethics in the workplace, like and all the, yeah, and all, we, we and all these, on, we've touched on everything in the, the video. So if you go to Facebook, yeah. you can see the video. Metaphorically, we metaphorically, touched. exactly. Touched. So, but we want to talk to um, about uh, what we'll talk with about as a as a interlocutor, <laughs> David Bentley Hart, who we've never really specifically addressed. We have quoted him, quoted, but this somebody posted this piece on facebook uh midweek i think Mm -hmm. and it got my attention and it's several years old like it's may 2014 but it's called gods and gopniks and (laughs) (laughs) could you just say like what you like what you your reaction when i sent this to you was (laughs) and what i say he uh the david benley hart is a verbal uh blowtorch yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. He's very incredibly smart. No, I, I actually, I mean, I find, and I, f- I find a number of his works remarkably helpful. I think he is brilliant and um, some other things as well. But we want to get him on the show, right? Do we? We might. We might. We might get him on the show. Well, there's, there's two questions there. I'm he does sorry. not like St. Augustine. <laughs> right. Well, of course. I mean, he's a little tough on Well, him. he, you know, he is the magisterium currently. Yeah. Yeah. He had to. He had to. He had to correct the New Testament. <laughs> so I would. Yeah, he did. He, he, just he has it. his own. By the way, we. I think he's arrogant enough not to listen to our stuff before he'd come on. So anything we say right <laughs> yeah. now would yeah. not would not yeah. be used yeah. against yeah. us. Probably not. There, but that review I pointed you to from Wesley Hill. Yeah, it was brilliant. His, that was a great review. His, was, I mean, that's one of the most brilliant book reviews. If ever. Jerome and Metzger could have just gotten it right, if they could have just listened to Hartley or David and Hartley, <laughs> <laughs> they could have wrote a Hartley. They could have wrote a Hartley. Yeah. So this, I, I think. What precipitated this from this blast from the past? Do you know why? Someone posted. Somebody it? just posted it like, randomly. Yeah, I mean, it was. I forget who it was, but I saw it and I thought it was actually. Uh, you know, it's funny because what was excerpted in their post was actually the concluding paragraph, which is what I want to spend the most time talking about. Right. But I think it's worth saying a moment about the context and reading right. the first paragraph. No, I think in you full. Yeah, you should. So basically. David, this guy Adam Gopnik, who wrote a piece, in and and, he, and he's basically a peripatetic. Where is he now? Is he in Notre Dame? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, yeah. He's a peripatetic uh, <laughs> because no one will give him tenure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's 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 because he's, he's you know he's a, he's, he's a, a walking he's uh, a free thinker. And he's a walking uh, bundle of offense as well. He, I'm sure yeah. he alienates so, every committee's part. So, okay. There, so I remember at the American Academy of Religion, there was a a discussion, a panel discussion of his book, The Beauty of the Infinite, which is a brilliant book. A brilliant book. Uh, and somebody said, a woman raised her hand, aren't you worried about the Constantinian undertones and potential implications of, of, of some of your arguments? He leans back, Kind of, it says, I look on Constantine with ambivalence on one hand and nostalgia on the other. <laughs> and I was like, that's why that guy doesn't have tenure. There we go. By the way, and uh, and that one's for you, Jeff Finch, who we will be 
uh, podcasting with this. Uh, yeah, yeah, on Reformation yeah. Sunday or Reformation Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, so we had. So this is the first paragraph in its entirety. And again, the context is Adam Gottnick from the New Yorker is is writing. I like a full-length kind of reflective essay on various books about atheism. Right. Atheism and theism. Athe- yeah. I mean, it seems most of it, I think, is uh, uh, stuff about, the, yeah, the debate between belief and unbelief yeah. in he hearts. Would, he would be pro-atheism. <laughs> very pro. Very yeah. pro. Right. <laughs> so this is Hart. So, and, and, and he is not sympathetic to Hart. I think it's fair to say. And he critiques Hart in his Yeah, he critiques Hart. So this is the first paragraph. <laughs> so I'm going to try to read this. This is so good. It's so fun. Journalism is the art of translating abysmal ignorance into execrable prose. At least that is its purest and most minimal essence. There are, of course, practitioners of the trade who possess talents of a higher order. The rare ability, say, to produce complex sentences and coherent paragraphs. <laughs> and they tend to occupy the more ele- elevated cast of intellectual journalists. These, however, are rather like whores with hearts of gold. <laughs> <laughs> More misty figments of tender fantasy than concrete objects of empirical experience. Most journalism of ideas is little more than a form of empty garrulousness, incessant gossip about half-heard rumors and half-form opinions, an intense specialization in diffuse generalization. It is something we all do at social gatherings, creating ephemeral connections with strangers by chattering vacuously about things of which we know nothing, miraculously transformed into a vocation. That's going to be our tagline for the podcast. New persuasive words, creating ephemeral connections with strangers by chattering vacuously about <laughs> things of which we know nothing, miraculously transformed into a podcast. <laughs> Some, somewhere Erasmus is smiling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. But he goes on to sort of take apart. Uh, and, and I do think, like, it, it is strange that uh, I, I don't think I've read The God Delusion, at least not in its entirety. I think I've, I've, I actually... I didn't read. I I read. I mean, I, I read, have it in my iBook. I read large segments of it because when those books came out, uh, the parish I was serving, there were a lot of concern. So I actually went through. A lo- I read. I read through a lot of those. Uh, the New Atheist uh, books. I read. I liked Sam. I did. Well, I didn't like Sam Harris's, but I liked. Uh, I, you Hitchens. know, Sam Harris is the one who I find most. I was a Hitchens guy. I always liked Hitchens. Well, I, I like Hitchens, but he's so intellectually dishonest. Is and that and when it comes to religion, he's a great was a great critic, but. Um, yeah. Anyway, so we so Hart here um, at one point got got mixed criticism of. Okay. <laughs> it's this is great. I mean, we could do, we should do audio books like this, right? Where we comment on it. So um, <laughs> the real problem with his article is not its dialectical deficiencies so much as its casual inanities. The dazzling moment of truth comes when Gottman claims that what unbelievers really have now is a monopoly on legitimate forms of knowledge about the natural world. They have this monopoly for the same reason that computer manufacturers have an edge over crystal ball makers. We know that men were not invented, that the earth is not the center of the universe, and that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intercession with the laws of nature. We need not imagine that there's no heaven. We know that there is none, and we will search for angels forever in vain. So that's Gopnik's critique. Yeah, that's that sounds fairly objective. <laughs> he said, did, did Gopnik bother to read what he was writing there? I ask only because it is so colossally silly. If my dog were to utter such words, I should be deeply disappointed in my dog's power of reasoning. <laughs> if my salad at lunch were to suddenly deliver itself uh, such an opinion, my only thought would be, what a very stupid salad. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. <laughs> well, you know, it, it does, you know, it does speak to the other bankruptcy of any kind of um, competency with metaphysical or philosophical language that really is part of the contemporary landscape. Very few people are able to talk intelligently about these things. Now, I would say that uh, he is an example, meaning, who's the writer again? Gottlieb? um, Gottnick. Gottnick is a, a, uh, if you would, secular example of the know-nothings in the Christian circles who carte blanche deny science. Yeah, of which there are many. There are many. So there's a sense where that it is, uh, I was trying to, I was trying a conversation with today and someone, and they asked me, I made a statement that, well, liberals and conservatives are the same thing. You know, they've come from the same place. And, uh, but I think this is a prime example. His utter ignorance of just basic philosophical, metaphysical, or even understanding Christianity. I mean, I remember when Rowan uh, Williams responded to, um, um, the God delusion. Uh, he said, I don't believe in the God he talked about either. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. And he didn't recognize right. So you have all these atheist writers who are set have set up a straw man that they call the Christian God or the theistic God. And it for most of us who are even semi thinking Christians, it doesn't it we don't recognize the deity that they don't believe I in. I would say I'm completely a semi thinking Christian. <laughs> I, I, I think as opposed to a semi Augustine or semi or and I cannot drive a semi. <laughs> yeah. I've driven a semi once. I've driven a really big moving truck in Manhattan. Never yeah. a semi. I, I well in Manhattan that's pretty me. I you know I had all these jobs working my way through college where they would try to kill the college people and one was you know that was uh, driving a they tried to make I, I had to back a truck in around a whole warehouse into a little slot and the guy that was sitting beside me was laughing. I would just cry. I did. I did. Uh, I almost cried driving that that truck in Manhattan. Like I was like, I, I yeah, I was young too. I was. Like, I, I pulled it into the bay. I looked at him, took the keys out, and flung them at his head and spoke blessings upon him. Yeah, I had yeah. so tough. So the concluding paragraph though here is it's interesting. After he completely dismisses, you know, the current. He, but, so Hart has a 
an assessment of uh, the current vogue of atheism, which yeah. which he lists three reasons. First, the metaphy- the mechana- uh, sorry, the mechanistic metaphysics inherited from the 17th century. Which break that down. So that so is... everything is cause and effect. You kind of if for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that if we really game things out, yeah. And could get the mathematical equation behind everything. We could predict it all. And that there's not chaos theory. There's not dark matter. There's not quarks. There's not quantum. Every, everything can be explained mathematically, which is actually what Galileo was condemned for. Galileo said everything could be reduced to that. That's actually what he was condemned for. Not that he believed the uh, sun was the center of the universe, because all the almost all the cardinals that tried him believed in a Copernican worldview. I like that. Yeah. So that's one, me- the mechanistic metaphysics. Number two is the banal voluntarism that is the inevitable concomitant of late capitalist consumerism. So basically, everybody's got to choose your own adventure. Like, you you know, Peter Berger says in, you know, the medieval world, you had to be a real courageous son of a bitch to be a heretic. Right. And, you know, his book, The Heretical Imperative, is saying like, in the modern world, you know, you have to be a heretic. Like, it, 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 you yeah. can't ascribe to any tradition everything you have gotta be free exactly yeah. everything has to be sort of it's kind of sorry chosen from yeah. a position of autonomy yeah i i am the only reality yeah i am i said and then the last one is the quiet fascism of western cultural supremacism that is the assumption that all cultures do not consent that, that do not consent um to the late modern Western vision are merely retrograde, unenlightened, and in need of intellectual correction and many more Blu-ray players. <laughs> Although I would say at this point, 2014, so I'd say just iPhones. Right. Making America great again. Do you have a, do you watch things in Blu-ray? No, I don't have a, I don't. I don't either. No. I mean, I've downloaded things in blue from Blu-ray format, but I don't, no, I don't know what that is. That. Nope. I don't even know what's better about Blu-ray. I don't know. I don't know. If anybody knows, please, please send us a message. Or, or send Scott a message. I don't, yeah, I I don't mean, really Maybe care. it's good. I, I don't, don't really care. So, But so, yeah, I mean, I think that's so, you know, there, I mean, I think his last point is that... that yeah, let's break that down. We, we explain the other two. So the kind of Western heritage, the mechanistic metaphysics, the voluntarism, and also the fact that in the late modern West... At least, although, I mean, you have to put this in, in tension with like all the things like um, PRRIs, you know, st- the fact that like even their study recently that came out that showed, you know, that nuns are on the rise. We're still not at all a nation of atheists or anything like that. No. But the <sighs> kind of prevailing uh, seeming flowering, at least in, in, in cultural outside of atheism, and then looking at tr- like cultures that are. Uh, somehow don't embrace all of Western culture's values and at the same time also have traditional religion in some way animating their public life. Like, you know, kind of looking at that, that's just one more part of their retrograde, right. you know, problems. And everybody's the West is the best kind of right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sense where, and I mean, I think there's various versions of that. There's, there's a liberal version of it. Uh, there's certainly a conservative version. We talked about that last podcast and then there's just trump who bigly bigly who kind of just uh i mean he has reimagined america in his own image it's his own self and the call of personality there are millions of people following it i mean it's it is a phenomenon you know one of the things i was just uh a lot of people were just kind of just continue to be bewildered by his popularity but 
I mean, if you were on the ground at different times where you had called a personality, you know, frequently it doesn't make a sense. You know, why would anyone follow Mussolini? Uh, you look at what Hitler was in his context. I um, mean, you go down, pick, you know, go throughout the centuries and pick, you know, people that really had um, uh, a cult of a cult following. Uh, there's there's a kind of internal rationalism to it that seems to work for the people in it. Um, you know, why anybody thought that Charles Manson might be the new beginning or David Koresh or whoever pick pick a messiah or some or distant messiah it's hard to know but sometimes people are so desperate that they are willing to believe and willing to embrace and I think so this kind of there's a sophisticated version of the third point he makes and there's a lot of actually borderline cultic versions of it I think I think I think the Trump thing has become cultic and I think that's part of this idea but part of it is this myth of America is the answer and my particular version of America which happens to be very white um, is is the ultimate supremacy yeah and also I mean, I think it's interesting because part of the populist ire that got Donald Trump elected is also the sort of underside of the claim to, you know, Western cultural supremacy kind of thing. I mean, there is an anger. Although, you know, maybe that's, it's interesting though, because at a certain economic level, people start breaking for Hillary. So the average income, I mean, that'd be interesting to look more at the data because I might be rehearsing a narrative that might not be true. Well, I also think too, if you go back to, I think it's hard to make any kind of, because Hillary Clinton's negatives were so hot. I think that that, I mean, I think that's part of it kind of, it's hard to assess, but what... But so you look at like the states, three states, right? 80,000 of three states, right? Mm -hmm. How many of the people statistically... So the idea is that like if, if Hillary would have spent more time with the sort of Rust Belt, yeah, kind I, of it. But I'm but not convinced of that. Yeah, well, but and also the people that might have swayed those states could very well have been people that were making over seventy five thousand dollars a year. Right. Like right. I mean, so it, it might. To, it might yeah, I mean, know. it's hard to. Yeah, I I think yeah, I think I think there's a lot of anti Hillary Clinton Clintonism, and I also think that. Um, that having an intelligent African American for president for eight years freaked people out, and there was a reaction to it. I think the I think the underlying racism that Trump plays to. I mean, let's face it; it's inherently. I mean, even the his taking on the NFL. And man, I've talked to people by have bought into his. his people have have drunk that Kool Aid, and so um, you know, I it's it's a fascinating thing, and I think it is it is it is all race baiting. It's absolutely it. So you would say number three is definitely true. Number three is definitely true. Yeah, I mean, living in well in America. So I'm trying to think, like, yeah, I mean, do my problem with this argument is do most people think about mechanistic metaphysics? No, I don't think most people think about metaphysics or cosmology. I think it's something they drink in the water. I mean, it's what's interesting to me. I, I you know, I don't know how many. I mean, I don't keep track, but. I've had over the years, I've had a lot of conversations with intelligent atheists, but I've had probably more conversations with less than informed atheists. There's a lot of people who just kind of popularly embrace it without doing, you know, doing kind of doing much thinking about it. So I think that gets back to your earlier comment that, you know, being a heretic is, it's okay to be a heretic now. Matter of fact, you almost need to be. Even the same thing in terms of, uh, it's a badge of honor to stop going to church now. Some people, I mean, they wear it as kind of a badge of honor. Now, again, I've been part of a discussion group at Resident Exile, and there's, some, there's a lot of pain behind people who are no longer um there are people who have been very wounded by the church and have legitimate reasons for not going but it's way too easy it's way too easy right now to forsake the gathering together of the saints and to be okay about it you know, it's interesting that i think the people that do that 
are actually generally people that are that go from but you're talking about go from over church to unchurched. I think there are people like that and people who particularly I think particularly the vulnerable are folks who were in churches that were emphasizing harmful things, whether it be a particular view of women, um, took a particular stand on um LGBT, you know, that stuff. I think there's a lot of people that have been fallouts from that. Uh, people who um but also, I think, yeah, I mean, people who are acting out their own psychological drama in the context of the church, they expected more from the church than they got. And uh, it's okay for them not to be there. And I, and frankly, you know— And the church is not an original sin-free zone. I mean, it, it, oh, the church, yeah. The yeah, church it, is a mess. No, I've yeah, seen, it's the not— Yeah, the, the, yeah. In some ways, I think the the thing I think about the church is the truth of the gospel. Part of the compelling truth is that reality that explains why the church doesn't live into the truth of it. Like, it, like at some level, the Christianity's explanation of the human condition is something that makes sense of the the difference between God and the church, the revelation of Christ and the church. That there's a there's a and I think whenever we try to equate the two right. too easily, you set yourself up for these kind of disappointing encounters. Right, but I also think self-righteousness immediately negates that. And there's self-righteousness of the left, there's self-righteousness of the Absolutely. right, and self-righteousness of the middle. I mean, uh, by the way, Don Baker, that's why we're not going to read that book you told us to read. <laughs> what book? The one we can't. Yeah, that uh, we're not going to interview the person because so, you don't want to give them a platform. Oh, uh, all right. Well, we're not going to do that then. But no, you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now yeah, you remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But okay, I think okay, so okay. self-righteousness, immediately when you become self-righteous, that means you're not righteous in Christ. So that immediately puts you in a position of hypocrisy. Now, we're all are, are hypocrites. The trouble is when we, we, we don't admit that we're hypocrites. And I think that's, that's a legitimate thing for people to be turned off about. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I said on uh, at the Resident Exile site, you know, I think I'm, I believe, believe strongly that I am and have been part of what's right about the church and, and have been what's been wrong about the church, too. I think that's something that, um, you know, I carry with me. And I think that's probably part of owning that is the only way I can kind of still walk in grace and, and continue to, to do this. By the way, the reason I've avoided hypocrisy is because— I keep my ideals low. Just keep <laughs> keeping the standards low. It's hard to fall. Um, yeah. So let's just. I want to close with a reading from the great one, Halik. Uh, this is the intro from the intro to Patience with God. Hardly anything points toward God and calls us as urgently for God as the experience of His absence. This experience is capable of leading some to indict God and eventually reject faith. There exist, however, particularly in the mystical tradition, many other interpretations of that absence and other ways of coming to terms with it. Without the painful experience of a world without God, it is hard for us to grasp the meaning of religious seeking, as well as everything we want to say about patience with God and its three aspects, faith, hope, and love. Amen. Have a good Friday night, everybody. Absolutely.